Tyson, one of the world's largest meat processors, is suspending operations at one plant this week after more than two dozen workers contracted COVID-19. Several cases of coronavirus have already been confirmed within the JBS facility in Greeley. Smithfield Foods shut down its processing plant in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. We have 431 active cases and 238 of those, more than half, are employees of Smithfield. For Americans who be, may be worried about access to good food because of this, I want to assure you the American food supply is strong, resilient, and safe. Today I'm also announcing that Secretary Purdue, who happens to be right next to me, handsome man, and the Department of Agriculture will be implementing a $19 billion relief program for our great farmers and ranchers as they cope with the fallout of the global pandemic. Very honored to be doing this. So as you can see, the meat packing industry hasn't been spared the coronavirus pandemic. Smithfield Foods and Cargill, Tyson Foods and JBS USA have all shuttered plants due to COVID-19 outbreaks. And in fact, the BBC reported that when the Sioux Falls, South Dakota Smithfield pork plant finally closed under pressure from the South Dakota's governor's office, the plant had become the number one hotspot in the US. And meanwhile, the Trump administration assures us that our food system is resilient and that billions in subsidies are on their way for farmers and for ranchers. So why are we seeing outbreaks at meat processing plants? And what do these plant closures mean for the US food production? Joining me is Jim Lowe, an expert in agribusiness and food production. I'm Brian Aldridge, also from the University of Illinois, and this is The Round Bar. Jim, welcome. Thanks again. Um, it's great to be back with you on this podcast. Jim, lots going on. and We could talk about COVID, COVID-19, and all the different aspects of that outbreak uh, in different, different aspects of that for hours and hours. But today, we want to talk about these processing plants, and particularly Smithfield. Smithfield's been the one that's been in the news. So uh, how did this Smithfield plant become what's described as a nation, the nation's number one hotspot for COVID-19 outbreaks? So Brian, I'm I'm glad to be back. We haven't done this in a while, so this should be fun uh, to get back together and uh, get the gang back together here. But uh, we probably should preface all this. We're recording this on Tuesday, April 21st, and this seems to change by the hour. So it's in the morning on the 21st. So uh, anything that's occurred after this point, we're 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 not responsible for. But um, so packing plants are an interesting deal, right? So the Smithfield plants got a tremendous amount of press, but they're actually not the first plant to close uh, in the U.S. We had a plant uh, in Columbus Junction, Iowa, close uh, two weeks ago today, and they're going to open back up today, and that was a Tyson plant. And we certainly have had some beef plant closures in uh, out east, uh, JBS and Cargill closed some plants out east, and that's kind of continued to roll. But um these packing plants are interesting, right? Because these are kind of a modern marvel of efficiency, but they're very much an assembly line, particularly on the side of the plant where we do what we would call the fabrication of the cut side. So in a, in a packing plant, maybe it's useful for everybody to understand, there's basically two halves of a packing plant. There's what we call the hot side or the side where we do stunning exsanguination and then evisceration of that carcass. So it's the part where the carcass, the pig goes from a live pig into a carcass. And that side of the plant is called hot because it's not cooled. 
after that pig is harvested, and the same thing happens in a beef plant, right? We strip the hide off the beef, we send it through, and we've now got this hanging half carcass. And we put that in a cooler, and we typically put that in a cooler overnight because we want to drop that down to refrigerator temperature. And then it's going to come out the next day, and it goes into what would be called the cut side. And that's where we take this half a carcass and break it into the primal cuts. And in a lot of cases, in a pork plant, much more than primal, we'll cut it down to individual muscles today. So it's that cut side of the plant. And, and if you can imagine this, you've got people standing in an assembly line. And if it's a ham line, they're taking individual muscles off the ham because we use those to make processed hams. And so there's a deboning process. And so it's pretty typical for those people to be standing almost shoulder to shoulder. Now, they're in frocks and they're in gloves and they've got a hard hat on and they're and they're generally, uh, you know, wrapped up and bundled up because it's cold in there. It's, you know, 41 degrees or something. It's in a lot of air moving because they're trying to keep everything cold so that we have food safety. But these people are literally just standing shoulder to shoulder. Um, and it's a cool environment. You could see pretty easily, right? How with that, then go to the lunchroom. Um, and it's a typical cafeteria. Everybody goes to eat at one time. They're all in close quarters. You shut shoulder to shoulder eating lunch. There's people touching their face, particularly when they're eating. And all of a sudden, right, you've got this transmission going on within the plant. And so, and how many people, much, Jim, how, how many people would work in Smithfield, do you think? So you've got I these two sides. Yeah, I think that plants about 3,700 people or something. It's a lot. Wow. wow. And that's and that's not a big plant. I mean, that's a kind of an average plant in the United States. Uh, there's plants certainly a lot bigger than that that employ a lot more people. So it's it's a lot of people in a really close spot. Um, and high pressure as a movement, it's manufacturing. So there's stuff. It, it's there's there's an element of keep going fast as well, right, Jim? So this is they're not just sitting hanging around just chatting, right? This is quite a vibe. Yeah, and it's. Yeah, and I wouldn't. I don't want to call it a rush pace, but it's a very steady pace. You know, you 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 take a ham and you take the one muscle off that you're going to take off. And this is Henry Ford manufacturing. We take a whole ham, and I don't debone the whole ham myself. Like if I was doing it at home, or you're cutting a ham, I remove one part of the ham because that's my job, and I push the ham back on the line. So typically, there's a conveyor belt and the big primal cuts coming down the conveyor and you pull it off and you do your thing and you shove it back on and the next guy takes it off. So there's this real steady pace of doom to doom to doom. So it's all day long. So yeah, there's, there is a consistent pace to the work. So it's not like we can just stop and say, well, let's just run it at half speed. And different shifts, Jim, would this be all in all out or would this be working? How many hours would this plant be working all day? So, um, Plants typically, we either think of them being one shift or two shift plants. So one shift plant would work typically eight hours, eight to nine hours a day, and a two shift plant is going to work sixteen hours a day. They have to be down. I think it's six hours overnight for cleaning, six to eight hours overnight for cleaning. So even if they're running two shifts, they never run three shifts because there's an entire cleaning crew that comes in overnight to clean the plant um, and wash it all down and sterilize it before the next day. And so that's kind of how that works. So. Yeah, it's either a one shift or a two shift. They're going to work a full shift. Um, they all work in unison, and they may take some breaks that are phased because as the line kind of works through to use the uh, lunchroom facilities, et cetera, better. But basically, it's all in. Everybody goes all day. There's another pork carcass coming because carcass pigs show up all day long. When I remember Jim going into one with you, and it was, it's amazing how clean this is, right? So, I mean, the, the cleaning process as far as food quality, it's the cleanest in the world, right? So these are, but, but you have these, 
I remember going outside and feeling almost relieved because it's an indoor. So it's either warm and hot where all these carcasses are or it's cold. So going out is almost a relief. And yet, but when you go in there, it's remarkably clean. But that means lots of water, lots of moisture. So it's a really, it's, it's, it's another world experience to be in one of these plants in some way, the crowding. But it's very clean too, isn't it? But for COVID, it sounds like a great place to spread, even though it's clean for our food and hygienic. Right. And if you think about it, it's probably not the line where they are spreading things because their hands are busy. They're not touching their face when they're on the line. But if you have 3,700 people working in a space, they're all going to go eat lunch or dinner or whatever, depending on which shift they're on. So they're going to take a midday break or a mid-shift break and go eat lunch. And they all crowd into the lunch and they're washing their hands and then they go eat and then they're touching their face, wiping their faces off. Um, you know, if you're on the, on the live side, it's hot. So you're standing there wiping your face off with a towel. Just think about the amount of contact. So it's, um, so everything it's we just, say about social distancing, you, they can't achieve in that work environment in a way, close proximity, don't touch your face. I mean, all of that goes wrong just because of the nature of the work in some way. It's exactly the opposite of social distancing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think the untold story is, is that we've talked about these few plant closures, but because of that density and as other packing plants have had positive people show up that work there, they have also then now started to slow the plants down. So a lot of the plants are saying, oh, we're going to take 20% less per day because we're going to spread people out on the line. We're going to make the lunchroom less crowded. We're going to add some auxiliary space for the lunchroom so people can stay five or six feet away or apart from each other in the lunchroom. And so that's all great. Except now, instead of killing 100 pigs, we're going to, and processing 100 pigs, we're going to harvest and kill 80 pigs, or harvest and process 80 pigs. And, well, that doesn't sound like a big deal, except that when we think about what's going on in the U.S. food supply chain, we have the most efficient system in the world, which means, because these are really high capital expense items, I mean, it costs hundreds of millions of dollars to build a packing plant. And the cost to run the packing plant are the same, whether I have 100 or 80 or 50. So the packing plants have all kind of been built to run at 100. And so everybody's full. They're full all the time. And so now I've got a supply chain to supply those plants. At, it's 100. And now I say only 180. Uh, now I got 20% that I don't know what I'm going to do with. Right. So what's going to happen? And I think that's from a producer side today. We've certainly got this plant issue and plant closure and that's kind of the extreme but the other bit is is that we've kind of slowed down all these other plants to try to do the right thing and have some worker safety and get some social distancing because we got to remember right these plants are in rural areas which is a change and we've moved these concentrated large facilities into rural spots that have not had a lot of COVID, and so they can be a source of community spread because they all collect and then they all go back out. And it's kind of like a mini New York City, right? New York City, there's some data that would suggest that commute time was important because there's a lot of people going into New York City. And then they would come in and they would go back out. You would allow this spreading back and forth. And that's kind of what a packing plan is doing for these rural communities. And so everybody's concerned that we back them off and distance them. But that's really created some backups in our supply chain on the, on the live side. So, Jim, what about food safety and uh, COVID infections? 
with all of these workers, can COVID affect meat supplies or food supplies in any way? From a strict food safety point, there is no evidence whatsoever that we have any risk of transmitting COVID through the food supply, whether that's vegetables or, you know, in our case, livestock. So even though these plants have had some issues, there is certainly no rationale or reason to think that anything coming out of those plants would be contaminated with uh, SARS-CoV-2. So, Jim, these are very high throughput, highly efficient systems. Can a plant run at partial capacity? What does that look like? And is that possible? Yeah, so a plant can run at partial capacity. And that just means instead of having 10 people standing in the same area, I might have six people standing in that area to get them. Instead of being two feet apart, now they can be six feet apart. What that means is, is that instead of putting out 100, I'm going to put out 60 because each person isn't going to do more work. So this Tyson plant in, in Columbus Junction that was closed for a couple of weeks, opening back up today, that's fully their intention. I don't know if they're going to cut it to 60%, but they're going to run a lot less people in the plant, get social distancing, get some guards up so people aren't uh, accidentally contacting each other. But that's going to impact the amount of pork that comes out of that plant in a day, directly proportional to the number of people they reduce. And so there are going to be some big implications on total packing throughput as we try to reduce the people density in the plant. That's also going to reduce the output of, of meat coming out of that plant. So I was thinking, Jim, you know, coming from Europe, there's, there's also this homogenization of the product, isn't there? Right? Because in these packing plants, every pig gets dealt with really in a similar way. Whereas opposed to, you know, in Europe, you'd have these markets, which are a bit closer to the farms. So I'd have a local market or a local abattoir in the local town. And, you know, one day I could kill this group of animals, this day I could kill the other one. Because this, there were different products sort of going through that and different, different aged pigs or different aged cattle. But, but here we have this efficient system, like any manufacturing system, there's been a homogenization of the product and an efficiency and a cost effectiveness of that as well. And so that's that's helped the scalability. I mean, those in, in Europe now, those, those little slaughterhouses have shut down because they're just so inefficient. You can't, they couldn't, they were unsustainable. But here's a system that everybody thought was sustainable and then in comes COVID and you're like, ooh, it's a bit of a fragile uh, food chain in that way, right? Yeah, and it's uh, interesting because even in Eastern Europe now, we still have quite a few... Um, packing houses that would be relatively small. Well, they would tell you a big packing house might uh, might slaughter a thousand a day, you know. And in in a U.S. packing house, we slaughter a thousand an hour, eleven hundred an hour. So it's you know it's eight or ten times different, right? And so, but they've got huge unspent capacity in these plants. And so, Eastern Europe, yes, different parts of the world would have different impacts of these kinds of messes than what we have. But we have homogenized everything from the pig that we raised to the cattle we raised to the way we process product. And a lot of that's been driven by what goes on at the grocery store, right? That if I go to Walmart anywhere in the country, I want the same thing. Well, Kroger wants to sell the same thing as Walmart and Costco wants to sell the same thing and Jewel or whatever your other grocery chain is, IGA. All of those basically want to sell the same thing. So we kind of predict commodity. We just... It's like oil. It's gas is gas is gas. Well, pork chop is pork chop is pork chop. And so it's this mass production of, of really identical things. And so we don't have any buffer. And it's really kind of changed what's happening and how the system works. And for food chains like McDonald's or, or for fast food chains, right? they'd be suppliers that would be receiving a lot of these products as well, wouldn't they? I mean, is, is it different for pigs and poultry and and, and no, beef? I think 
Well, it's each of those has a different mix, right? Because what we sell, but it's been somewhat interesting as we've looked at both beef and pork that we've kind of shifted demand for. And I don't know enough about chicken, but I presume the same thing is going on in the chicken front that um, we've shifted on the pork side away from bellies because we had bacon for everything. So bacon, we're all green bellies. So uncured bellies were like $2 a pound a year ago and they were 40 cents or 34 cents or something crazy yesterday. Um, just, uh, you know, basically, you know, a, a live pig is worth uh, 50 cents a pound and the belly's worth 34. So I've got to process it and it's worth less than what I paid for the live pig. And so it's just, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's ridiculous. Uh, but that's because we aren't using restaurants, right? We're eating less bacon. We're making all this bacon for restaurants. We don't need that much bacon for restaurants. So bellies are piling up and we don't know what to do with them. Kind of the opposite happens on the cattle side that we have, um, we historically would have sold a lot of middle meat into restaurants. And so middle meats being loin, rib chops, you know, ribeyes and T-bones and strips and all those things. And we don't we're not eat as much of that at home. We need a lot of hamburger. And so it's a, right. We tend to eat more hamburger at home. And so the product mix has shifted. And then we've had this huge fall off in export demand. Uh, you know, on the pork side, we're selling some like 30% of our 30% of our value uh, this year. Um, and so when that's fallen off because the rest of the world is in the same mess we are, that's had huge implications on a demand side. And so the, the pork side has been a little different than the beef side, uh, pork, Wholesale prices have dropped because of a reduction in demand because of this export thing, and now pork and live, and so neither the packer processor or live production is making very much money right now. We're all kind of stinking it up because we can't we can't get anything. Beef has been interesting. Beef is uh, box beef price or wholesale beef prices continue to stay relatively high because of demand uh, for hamburger and beef and everything else, and yet. Cattle live cattle prices are terrible right now um, because they've been closing plants and they can't do stuff. So we got way more cattle than we've got packer capacity, and so we got a supply demand imbalance there. But yet we still got good demand for beef, and so on the beef side, the packers are just making a fortune right now, and four or five hundred dollars a head. And the pig guys were doing that, and now they're. I mean, you take divide by 10. So they were making 40, 50 bucks. Now they're not making any either. So it's this mix of what's happening in the chain and, and where are we, where are we, or where are we not making money? So who's at most risk? So the consumers, you're saying they're okay. There's plenty of food. We're not worried about enough food, but certain levels of the food are making more profit, some are less. So who's complaining? Who's at most, who should be most fearful kind of thing in this, in this current crisis as far as the food yeah, chain? Yeah. Yeah. We got plenty of meat. I don't know if we can get it to the right people at the right time, but we got a lot of meat. So it, it, we don't need to worry about either meat, food safety or food supply from a production standpoint, but from a distribution standpoint, right? We got some, we may have some challenges. I think the question from a, who should be the most worried um, short-term versus long-term Certainly in the short term, uh, producers or, or livestock producers are really in trouble. Um, they're losing massive amounts of money per head today. I mean, pig guys are probably losing 40-ish dollars a head on average. We sell 200 pigs at a time. So every truck we sell, we lose $8,000 $8, on. So a typical farm in the U.S. is going to sell 
uh, but either, you know, five, uh, a individual breeding her in the U.S. at 2,500 sows is going to sell five trucks of pigs a week. So they're losing $40,000 a week. And so, you know, you can only do that about so long before you decide you're going to run out of cash. And it looks like it's going to get worse this fall. So it's, uh, we've got some really, really ugly times in the pig business. I think the longer term concern is, is it, what's it going to do to our packing uh, arrangement? And uh, will packers go broke? Will packers pull out of the industry if they continue to lose a lot of money? And so I think it's going to restructure some things in the industry, uh, whether we like it or not. We saw this in 98. We saw it in 2002, where we saw massive consolidation on the live side uh, and some integration happening between uh, live and packing. And I think that will something will happen. I don't know if that's exactly what's going to happen, but this is one of those uh, life-changing moments that we're going to see a very different industry come out on the back end of uh, this mess that we've got going right now, whether we like it or not. Well, last Friday, you know, President Trump announced, was it $16 billion in subsidies for farmers and ranchers? So, so how's that going to help? And and if the system was resilient, which we thought it was, why is that needed? And how's that going to be apportioned? And Yeah, so it's... Um... 16 billion, I think it's a lot. I, the B, when I think we get to a B, I think that's a lot. I don't know how many zeros that is, right? But um, so this is an interesting package, right? So we had a deal last summer over trade, the um, uh, uh, MFP payments that were made, market facilitation payments that were made primarily to crop farmers and a little bit to pigs to really kind of make up for the tariffs going into China because of loss of market. But this year, this package that's come out here in the last week, most of that, and from what I can see on Twitter, and we know Twitter is completely the reliable news source, <laughs> um, but the commentary there, Ag Twitter is actually quite good. It's quite interesting. But uh, if, you, if you look at that, um, uh, this apparently is the first time that the vast majority of a, of a subsidy or a, an emergency response program has gone to livestock instead of crops. There's a very small amount in this for crops. And so that's, uh, that's a bit interesting. And I think um, they announced a little bit of purchasing of goods. And historically, that's what they've done to support livestock producers. I think the concern was this time, uh, we talked a little bit about, right, the beef guys are making, the beef packers are making a ton of money. You know, if they go buy more product uh, to create demand, that that's going to distribute that money to packer processors and not directly to producers. Um, and so they said, well, let's just reach out and write the check right to producers this time. And so um, we're going to put a lot of money in the industry, uh, probably not enough to make up the gaping losses uh, that are happening, but we're certainly going to dump. Uh, a ton of money at these producers and most of that going to beef producers, which uh, are losing a ton of money, but uh, that's a really interesting, it's interesting to see how the sausage maybe got made on that one as to why the beef guys got uh, three times or four times as much as pork producers have. And how long will that last, Jim? I mean, how long will that subsidy, do, do you have a sense of that now? I mean, I know that's a recent announcement, but. Uh, the, we don't understand how that money is going to be allocated. Um, to producers and whether it's going to be on inventory and how much per head, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It'll help. It'll help get some guys over the hump. Um, I think one of the questions is, is are we just putting, uh, are we not letting capitalism work? We probably need to grind the industry down a bit. We need to take out producers and nobody likes to hear that. But, um, 
you know, they're, they're, these are large, uh, sophisticated businesses today, particularly on the pig side, and they probably need to uh, re-ration capital. Um, and incentives like this probably confuse that a bit. So it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see if those tax dollars we're spending actually are effective at helping producers, or we just allow some market distorting things to happen and. We never really know until those things, right? That's a five year from now deal, but it's certainly, um, I think it's a feel good right now, uh, particularly in an election year for everybody to jump off the cliff and start writing checks. But the question is, what's that impact going to be over the long haul? And I, we won't know, but there's certainly going to be some market distortion that may, uh, may happen on that. And Jim, were you and the industry surprised? I mean, did the industry think it is resilient and just find out that it isn't? I mean, were there any heralds saying, hey, this system is fragile, we need to make sure, not be ready necessarily for COVID, but be prepared for an interruption in some way? So were there heralds going, oh, look out, this is coming? Or and were you, Personally, were you surprised? Were you saying, oh, I thought we were more resilient and we're not? No, you knew the thing, the whole industry was set up to not tolerate disturbance very well because every every time we have a disturbance it goes kind of ugly um but and we've had supply disturbances we've demand disruption disturbances right in my career we've had a issue with high corn prices in 95 we had uh, low horribly low pig prices due to oversupply in 98 we had too many pigs in 2002 so this is not an a uh an infrequent thing that happens to us to kind of go through crisis but it's a commodity industry uh, it's not a, we're not selling iPhones here. We're selling a commodity and whether that commodity is oil or whether that commodity is mining or whether that commodity is coal, right? Um, selling copper or coal or oil or pigs, they're all commodities. And so they're very cost sensitive businesses. And when you get a lot of capital tied up throughput matters. And so you are incented to run the throttle as hard as you can run it, because that's actually how you dilute cost out of the system. And in a commodity business, a low cost producer wins. So the producers we have left on the market today are extremely efficient, exceptionally low cost, and have understood how to maximize throughput to minimize cost in the system. And so when the rules change, which is what's happened with COVID, uh, we are going to disrupt that process. And so I think if you look at mining, you look at what's going on in the oil patch right now, right? Oil yesterday was negative two or something. Um, they had, you had to, they would pay you to take it. And I realize that's in the futures and that's a, that's a, you know, a bit of a red herring, but it's the same basic discussion that oil guys are incented to run them as hard as they can, because it costs as much to drill the well, whether you pump a gallon or a billion gallons out of that hole. And, that's uh, kind of where we're at in the pig business and so in the cattle business. So everybody's running hard and we're going to have to sort out the market. And what we're going to find out out of all this is who has really good balance sheets and whose bankers are willing to stand behind them and continue to finance it. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll sort that out at that point. So Jim, thanks for joining us. We hope that you've all enjoyed listening. We'd love to hear from you too. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at the round barn one, or you can email us at the round barn at vetmed.illinois.edu. And we may even share your comments on the next show. So uh, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show. It's available on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. 
And one last thing, we offer here at Illinois a wide range of learning opportunities for folks who work with livestock and vets, veterinarians too. So can you, you can learn more about that at online.vetmed.illinois.edu. Thank you for joining us. And thank you, Jim, for uh, spending time with us. Thanks, Brent. Enjoyed it.